0: On May 24th, 1921, a marathon took place in South Africa where over 20,000 runners sought to run 56 miles in one day. In fact, they accomplished the goal in, other, in under 12 hours. Think about the pain that that would have endured. 56 miles, that's about a pace of... Uh, Four miles, that's a pretty good pace, isn't it? Uh, The fastest time that was done ever on that particular task was five hours and 24 minutes. These men and women were running at a rate of over four miles per hour constantly for 12 hours. I wonder how they felt at the halfway point. Did they want to give up? Did they want to quit? Surely many of them had trained for many months, perhaps even years, to get to that point. Runners that run short marathons, just five mi- or 5Ks, trained for many months. They had trained well, they would know what their body would endure. They would know that about after the halfway point, their body would literally begin to eat itself, and their blood would become so thin that if they were to nick themselves, they could possibly bleed to death. As we think about the endurance that our bodies go through, the pain and suffering that we often endure through running or other forms of exercise, the agony and the pain that you and I experience, maybe perhaps just getting out of bed this morning, this is a reminder of the physical pain that we often experience Suffer, whether it be willingly like these runners or whether it be because our bodies are wearing out. If these runners had given up halfway, just imagine how devastating that would have been. All of the countless months and years of training to come to this point, all of it would have been in vain. All of the pain, all of the agony would have been for nothing. It would have been wasted For them, the finish line is really only the end that they could have in mind, and and no doubt throughout the entire run, they had to fight in their mind, I'm going to finish, even if I crawl across that finish line. They completed something that only a small minority had ever accomplished, 56 miles in a single day. Imagine what it would have been like to complete such a task, how How much victory would have been, how encouraging they would have been, how exhilarating it would have been. The difficulty of the race so often makes the finish all the more sweeter, doesn't it? When you and I endure trial, when we get through the other side, there's a sense of sweet victory to know that we made it. We can breathe again, we can breathe without it hurting. Friend, friend, I wonder as we come to the end of Luke's Gospel, three years of ministry, an eternity of preparation, literally an eternity of preparation comes to its climax. Jesus on the Via Dolorosa making His way down the road of agony. And despair. The end, the finish line, is there. Imagine what it was, Christ knowing the agony that awaited Him, the physical sufferings of the cross as a man, but also the wrath of His Father that would be endured as the divine Son of God. The pain, the agony, the suffering. Friends, we've considered even in the last several weeks in the trial of Jesus, the agony that He would endure. The, the agony and the suffering of death that awaited for Him. Even in the garden as He cried out, Father, if there's another plan, please let's do that plan. But you see, what Jesus is doing isn't fulfilling a plan that was concocted in time and space. Jesus isn't just figuring things out as He goes along, but rather, this was an eternal covenant of redemption. Not a covenant between God and man, but a covenant between the Godhead. The eternal covenant of redemption was that the Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted together to save a people that they would create. A people that they knew would rebel against them. A people that they would have to judge because of their sin. But they had purposed From eternity past, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, to redeem sinners for their own glory. And Jesus has come to fulfill that purpose. And what we saw last week in that prisoner exchange between Jesus and Barabbas. As a guilty man is set free and an innocent is condemned, we see an emblematic picture of what we have come to know and believe, which is the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. We believe the Bible teaches that Jesus bore the wrath of His Father on Calvary's cross as an innocent lamb. Slaughtered for you and for me. And this theme of atonement continues as we stare at the cross this morning and consider the final hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And as I said weeks earlier, we've slowed down our pace a bit here in these final chapter and verses As we seek again to think afresh about what Christ accomplished on Calvary. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never borne and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and on the hills cover us. For? If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus, in our text this morning, demonstrates himself to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. He prophesies over the people. He intercedes as a high priest for those who are executing Him. And He displays the kind of kingdom He has come to rule and reign over. And through His atoning work on the cross, Jesus secures our eternal redemption and forgiveness of sin. That Jesus doesn't die a victim of injustice but willingly dies the death that you and I rightly deserve. The purpose of our time this morning, I hope, is to to instill in us a desire to trust Jesus' work. That He accomplished what God sent Him to accomplish. That He fulfilled that eternal covenant of redemption that the Father, Son, and Spirit had made all those millions or trillions of years earlier. And so this morning, I want us, if you take notes, really consider these three offices of Jesus to help sort of be hooks to hang our hat on, our thoughts on, if you will. So first, we see that Jesus fulfills his atoning work by proving to be a prophet. He was a prophet, Secondly, he demonstrates himself to be our high priest, prophet, he is a priest, and lastly, he dies as our anointed king. And through his kingly death ushers in an eternal kingdom. So verse, look there at verses 26 through 31. We see that Jesus again demonstrates as he has done throughout the gospel of Luke to be a prophet. He prophesies. But before we get to that, I want you to notice here this opening line, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Jesus has just been scourged, he's just been beaten, he's losing blood at a tremendous rate, and no doubt was tired and weary. This man was a carpenter. He was used to carrying big, large pieces of lumber. This wasn't a difficult task for Jesus, but no doubt very difficult when one has endured the kind of beatings that he has endured. It's been a long night. He's not slept. We're not told that he's ever rested since the Garden of Gethsemane. And Simon, coming in from what is today modern-day Libya, is instructed to carry the cross. This would have been normal behavior. The Romans would have paraded people around as a sort of avergence to to rebellion. This is what happens to you, friend, if you rebel against Rome. We will strap big pieces of lumber to you, and we'll drag you around, and we'll ultimately hang you on a cross. Now, interestingly enough, Luke mentions the man's name, which I've pointed out throughout is often because he would have been known to perhaps Luke and Paul and the rest of the church there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In fact, Mark, in his gospel account, mentions the man's two sons that he had, Rufus and Alexander. Would have been known to this early church. Perhaps it was here on the road that he comes to know Jesus in a saving way. Well, regardless, the the scene continues as Jesus is making his way to Calvary. We are told that women are weeping for him. These could have been perhaps followers the women that followed closely to Jesus. These could have also been professional mourners that were hired for occasions just as this to, to kind of go out and make a big scene and mourn and lament. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus tells them to stop? He says, hey, quiet down. Don't weep for me. Why does he do that? Well, one, because Jesus is there to accomplish something. Jesus is going willingly. Jesus is... A accomplishing the purposes which the Father has set, but also to point out a fulfillment of the prophecies that He had already shared. Remember, uh, there just a number of days earlier, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, He wept over the city. He lamented over... What was He lamenting? Well, He was lamenting the fact that they didn't recognize God as their King. Just as centuries earlier, when the people were whining and complaining to God, saying, hey, we want a king, just like all the other people of the world. They appointed Saul to be king. Well, in doing that, they rejected God as king. And the same kind of scenario is happening here as the people are once again rejecting the king that God had for his people. They're rejecting him. And Jesus prophesies of a, of a time that will that will come of, come about. In, in other words, he's kind of like a parent. You know how sometimes when our kids are whining and complaining, what do we often say to them? I'll give you something to cry about, right? You know, they're, they're, they're they're whining and complaining. And this is what Jesus is doing. In, in essence, he's saying, women, stop the crying. I'll give you something to weep and mourn about. I'll give you something. And that is the, the eternal punishment and judgment of God that is going to come upon this place because of what you're doing because you're participating in the death of God's own Son. What Jesus is foreshadowing here in these verses, in the horror and the picture of what was fulfilled in 70 AD, when Rome came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And the picture that he depicts here is of women who are saying, I wish I never had a child. Why? So that I don't have to see a child die. There's no Greater anguish, perhaps, for a parent than to see their own child suffer. Or, as he, for, as he kind of foreshadows using Hosea 10.8, they would cry to the mountains, fall on us, verse 30, or the hills cover us. In other words, they wanted a quick death, but unfortunately, a quick death didn't come. It was drawn out for years as the Romans had surrounded the city and would ultimately, Allow the people to starve to death. Josephus, a Jewish historian writing during this time period, would record that mothers would even eat their own children in order to sustain themselves. It was a horrific picture of judgment upon the people of God because of their rebellion against Him. And don't we see also, though, a a picture of discipleship in this? In Simon of Cyrene, carrying a cross behind Jesus. I don't think it's the main idea of the text, but it definitely is a foreshadow of what you and I are called to in everyday life. To take a cross and to follow Him. Well, regardless, we see in this text that Jesus prophesies and His prophecy comes to fulfillment. He is the great prophet that has risen above His people. God's people, to lead them with God's word. His promises are secure and sure. And Jesus here is displaying the trust that you and I ought to have in his word. So when we think about the office of prophet, we're thinking of one who tells us the word of God, but more than that, the one that we can depend upon, that his promises will come about. So Jesus is our prophet sovereignly leading us by his word but also we see in this text beginning in verse 32 that he is our priest Now, just imagine for a moment he has just been beaten he is bleeding he is in pain and agony he cannot carry the cross beam he is about to be uh, you know nailed to the cross hoisted up on this and he takes time to do what but to do what Jesus always does and that is, pray for God's people. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, now for you and I, we're used to calling Calvary, right? We, we, when we say Calvary's cross, this is simply the Latin word for the skull, So as these are transliterated over time, this is where we get the word Calvary from. In other words, they were taken to Calvary. There was two criminals, one on each side. An allusion to perhaps Isaiah 53, that he was numbered among the transgressors. Regardless, we see then in verse 34, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments among them. Jesus prays for the Father's forgiveness of the very ones who are murdering Him. The very ones who are executing Him. Friend, do you see this beautiful picture of intercession by Jesus? One who is suffering agony and pain of the cross yet takes time to pray for the very ones who are committing this act. Now again, this isn't to... uh, take away the obligation they have to repentance and faith, but rather to demonstrate His intercessory work. What Jesus is doing in this moment is what Jesus continues to do into the present day. Or what He taught His disciples earlier in Luke chapter 6. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. Pray for those who persecute you. Or as Jesus does for His own disciples, In his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, I pray not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is what the author of Hebrews is reflecting on in his sermon. For example, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 17, he writes, during his earthly ministry, Jesus offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who is able to save him from death, and he was heard because of His reverence. this is wonderful to know that Jesus is praying on our behalf? That Jesus is interceding for you and I before the Father? What does this look like? Well, we've sinned against the Father. We've sinned against His Word, His will, His law. And Jesus is saying, don't punish them. Remember, you punished Me. What a wonderful picture of the Gospel. Well, this is what the author of Hebrews goes on to write. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, having attained an eternal redemption. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, but into heaven itself, so that He might now appear in God's presence for us or on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, one of the truths of the gospel that we affirm is not only that Jesus dies a substitutionary death on our behalf, but that intercessory ministry continues even to today as He stands before the Father. As the accuser accuses you and me daily, know that Christ stands before the Father interceding for you. Well, what does this mean practically? Well, this means that God's love for you doesn't change because your behavior. Like, we have really bad days sometimes. And I understand our conscience can bear witness that we've grieved God or grieved His Spirit. But friend, never think, if you're in Christ, if you've believed upon Christ, then even when you stumble and fall flat on your face, God, by His grace, still intercedes on your behalf. The blood of Christ is pled every day before His throne. Meditate later today on that hymn we sang earlier, Before the throne of God above. And that's the truth that occurs every moment of every day. Hold assurance out in that way. Jesus intercedes. He stands in the gap for us. He is the one who applies His blood in your place so that you and I don't have to shed our blood. He is the priest who offers up himself as a sacrifice for sin. Only Jesus, friend, can pay the penalty your sin rightly deserves. This prayer proves this point to us this morning. Well, not only is he a prophet and priest, we see that he is also a king As you meditate on these verses, something that really comes to the fore is this accusation. This accusation was at the forefront of Jesus' trial. What was the accusation? That he was a king. This is, in fact, the charges that the religious leaders leveled against him in order to get Pilate to kill him. They knew that Pilate wouldn't execute him for any other reason other than a threat to Caesar. And so... Being a threat to Caesar, they execute him as a criminal, as an insurrectionist, one who sought to be a king. And of course, we see that come throughout this entire text, beginning there in verse 35. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. The rulers, that is the religious leaders. He saved others, let him save himself, notice the conditional statement, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Some tra- your translation might say the Messiah, uh, this Christ. Christ is the Greek word, Messiah, the Hebrew word for the same office. That is not merely a savior, but a kingly savior. A, the Davidic king, a descendant of David who would also reign and rule as a savior, it's restated, his chosen one. Now, this is a, a direct correlation to Isaiah 42 that I read earlier that he is the, the king who was specifically chosen by God to rule and reign over my people. This is my spirit, excuse my servant. This is my chosen one. I delight in Him. I've put my spirit on Him. He will bring justice to the nations. And of course, one of the most famous psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 22, is just full of allusions to what we see on Calvary's cross, describing the sufferings of God's anointed King. In both Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, we see this king suffering as the innocent one who had done nothing deserving death. We see this this startling accuracy in which it paints a picture of a king who would come and die in the place of sinners. Each of these psalms end with this triumphant vindication of God's king as he would come out on the other side as the one who rules and reigns over God's people. My friend, we see this fulfilled in not only Christ's death, but in His triumphant resurrection three days later. Well, regardless, it continues. The rails continue to come. Hey, if you're the King, if you're the Chosen One, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. Notice here, even in verse 37, if you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. That's twice they say that. And then, verse 39, what's the criminal say? Dude, if you're the Christ, let's get out of here. Like, if you're literally the guy, let's go. Save us and save yourself. A friend, do you see the irony in these statements? Jesus doesn't come to save himself, but to save sinners. Jesus knew that if I called just one of the angels to save me, the atonement would have been lost. More than that, He's the divine Son of God. He didn't need angels to help Him. He could have Himself with a word spoken, and all of them would have been gone. Every one of them destroyed. He could have called fire down out of heaven. He, he could have done a whole number of things, but but He chose... Not to save himself. He chose rather to die because Jesus wasn't there for himself. Jesus wasn't being an example to humanity about sacrifice. Jesus wasn't a victim to human fate. No, no, Jesus had all the power and all the authority to get down off the cross, but he stays on the cross because Jesus is there to do the Father's will. Father, not your will, not my will, rather, but your will be done. It is clear that Jesus is being executed as a king. And Jesus takes this role head on and does not save himself, but rather saves a multitude of people for his own glory. It's interesting, these two criminals that are executed, perhaps they were a part of Barabbas' inner circle. Perhaps they had participated in the insurrection. We really don't know much about them, other than the fact that they are being executed for perhaps similar crimes Um, You wouldn't have been executed for petty theft. These two friends must have done something that had warranted Pilate's favor and his execution. The first one rails at him, we are told. He begins to rail at Jesus. Hey, why don't you save yourself? Why don't you save us? Why don't you help us off the cross? And the other rails back at the other criminal. Let me just imagine the scene for a minute. These these three men are dying. A horrifically painful death. Yet they have time to have this little brief conversation. And as this man's mocking Jesus, railing at Jesus, assaulting Jesus, literally blaspheming Jesus, the other criminal begins to speak up on behalf of Jesus. He's saying, hey fool, you're up here with me because we deserve to die. This man is innocent. Now, isn't it it interesting that they find him innocent, That this criminal finds him innocent? Perhaps he had been party to the conversations. Perhaps they had talked about it. Perhaps they had just seen how things had interchanged. They knew that Jesus was innocent, at least this one criminal did. Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? In other words, dude, you're about to die, and this is what you're going to spend your time doing? You are literally hanging on a death instrument. This is the end of the line for you, and this is how you're going to spend your final hours? Cursing an innocent man? This man, Philip Ryken, likens him to the luckiest man alive. Of all the people he could have been executed with, He just happens to be executed next to the Savior of the world. And he asked Jesus, Jesus, verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's other things we want to note about this man. Number one, his repentance. Notice here first in verse 41, as he responds to his fellow, he says, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. You know, the first step to repentance is owning sin. Doesn't he own it? He doesn't try to justify it. I, hey, don't we know we're all innocent here? Yeah, Pilate, look, he, he, he he's got this guy up here dying, he's an innocent guy, and so we're innocent too. No, he owns his sin. We deserve death. We deserve what we're getting. We deserve hell. But this guy, he doesn't deserve this. J.C. Ryle, I think, just poignantly describes the situation. One thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. J.C. Ryle is driving home the point that God is sovereignly saving a sinner for His glory. That you and I might not despair and to know that God saves the worst but the man also not only repents of his sins, but notice in verse 42, in his words to Jesus, believes upon him. He says, when you come into your kingdom, they're dying. What do you mean? What kingdom? This is the end of the road. He's done. This man is... What, what kingdom? The guy is dying on a cross. There's, he's not getting down. What kingdom? See, this this. This criminal had an eye of faith. He he believed that he was the king. That he was the king of the Jews. That he was the Messiah. He's trusting. Hey, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Remember who I am. He believes upon Christ. He demonstrates tremendous mercy. And he cries... Tremendous faith, and he cries out for mercy to the only one who can give him mercy. Remember me. Don't forget me. Friends, that's what mercy is. God's remembrance of us. Ryle would go on to write, The man whom our Lord saved was a wicked sinner at the point of death, with nothing in his past life to condemn him, and nothing notable in his present position, but a humble prayer. Yet even he was plucked from the burning flame. Surely this was mercy. And then a reminder to us all that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by work. This man had done nothing to deserve salvation, he had done everything to deserve death. Not merely death on a cross, but death eternally for his rebellion. But he was saved not by work, but by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And he heard from Jesus' own mouth the greatest words of assurance that any human being has ever heard. Look at what he says to him. Verse 43. And Jesus says to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, he says. Now the word paradise is the word for garden. Some of your translations might even choose to use that word, garden. It's a picture of a place where God dwells with his people. John saw a vision of it in Revelation 2 7. Let anyone who hears, who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says. To the one who conquers, I will give to the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a place of eternal dwelling where God's people are with God in his presence. And Jesus here promises him: Truly, today you will be with me. Truly, He gives them assurance. Verily, verily. Amen, amen. It will happen, Jesus says. He offers the man assurance. Some of you this morning might wrestle with that truth of assurance. How can I know that I am saved? Well, friend, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His atoning death, if you've turned from your way of living and are seeking to follow after Christ, then you can have assurance of salvation. Because Jesus offered this man assurance, He offers it to you today. Today, He says, you will be with me in paradise. You know, step back for a moment and look at these two criminals. Are you not the Christ? Save us and yourself. Hey, we're all going to die here. When you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? Friend, what do you want from Jesus? Jesus. Is that what you want? Get me off this cross. You just want Jesus to do something for you. Do you see the difference between one who's saved and one who's not? See, one man just wanted Jesus to do something. The other man, he just wanted Jesus. Get me off this cross. Save me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Friend, I wonder if you could have paradise, but have it without Jesus, would that be good enough for you? Is the only reason you're here today is because you want to go to heaven You just want to go to heaven? You'd be happy if Jesus was there or not. You just want to go see your loved ones that have died. You just want to go have that big mansion in the sky. For you, you just want to go to the, to the place. But that's not what Jesus is doing on the cross. Jesus isn't hanging on a cross so that you and I can go live a transcendent life in eternity. Jesus is dying on a cross so that you and I could be with him. You know so often as Christians, we focus on the destination rather than the person that lives in that destination. Notice again what he says. Today you will be with me in paradise. The in paradise is the secondary idea to the preposition with me. The main idea is with me. Jesus is the paradise. Jesus is the promise. Brothers and sisters, we need to get our minds off the destination and back on the one who lives in that destination, and that is Jesus. Do you want to be with Jesus, or you just want to be in heaven? Because those who are truly saved, they want to be where Jesus is. They want to be with Jesus. What their hearts long for, what gets them to endure, is being with Jesus. You know, so often you and I, we, share, we shy away from the book of Revelation because there's a lot, of, a lot of creepy things in there that we don't understand. But I bet you, if you read that book like a persecuted Christian in the first century, and you, you saw all the whores around you and the slaughter of your brothers and sisters every day, you would want to hear the words that the book ends with. You'll be With me. God's dwelling place is with man. The end of the book of Revelation isn't that God's people are in a really cool place called heaven, but that they are with God. Friend, today is the day of salvation. Jesus offered the thief assurance and immediate forgiveness and acceptance by God the Father. Truly, Jesus says. With a sense of certainty and assurance that Jesus was accomplishing God's redemption. It was finished upon that cross. It was done. And you can know today without a shadow of a doubt that God is saving you from yourself by what Christ has done on Calvary. Today, offered the man immediate assistance or acceptance. He could go confidently that salvation for sin was accomplished and this promise not only for Him but for you today. If you will trust as He did. If you will turn from your way and go God's new way through Christ. That Jesus died as the sin-bearing substitute for you and for me. Turn and trust Him today. And you, too, will be with Him in paradise. Let's pray. Father, we come just overwhelmed by Your grace in our life and the mercy that we have received through Christ Jesus our Lord. Even now as we take up these elements and feast upon the blood and the body of Christ, a picture of the gospel to us, that Your blood was shed on Calvary's cross to make atonement for our sins. It was the blood that sealed that eternal covenant between the Father, Son, and Spirit. A covenant that shall never be broken. A covenant that will never wear out. That Your body was broken in our place. Where we deserve death and judgment, You have offered us Your life. A life of everlasting enjoyment with you for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As our deacons come forward, Pastor Brett, we come to a time in our regular rhythm of life together to remind ourselves of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus died for sinners, as we've just thought about and affirmed. That Christ has given us a meal that we are to celebrate together as a sign of the covenant that we have come to know and to believe. As a congregation, we believe that this ordinance, known to us as the Lord's Supper or communion, is an ordinance that Jesus has given to the church, and therefore, those who are Christians are welcome to the table this morning. We believe that one of the signs that you're following Jesus is that you've been baptized as a believer. And so this morning, if you are, if you understand yourself to be a Christian, and you've been baptized as a believer, and you're a member of a local church, it doesn't have to be this church, it could be a church somewhere else in our community, or somewhere else around the world, and you're not under church discipline, you're not you know, living in open and willful rebellion against God, well, friends, you're welcome to feast with us at the table. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church in Corinth, warns them against eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. We ought to approach the table with humility, with sobriety, and with a spirit of repentance. Just as you go to the doctor to have blood tests done to see if you're healthy or not. Friend, this is an occasion that Jesus has gifted his church to be a spiritual health checkup, to see, hey, have I been following Jesus this last month since I took the supper? Have I been exemplifying Christ in my life? Let it be an occasion to resolve in this moment to say, Jesus, by your spirit, I seek to display the gospel through a submissive life and through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray over the meal, and then the brothers are going to distribute the elements to you. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ, for His body and His blood. We give You thanks for this meal that we can share together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and as we feast together, we do so with anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we all shall one day soon gather with all the saints together around Your table and celebrate this eternal redemption that we have received by faith in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray over this meal that it would quicken any heart that has become dull to the things of the Gospel. That it would remind us to relish in the glories of Christ, to abhor the sin that we have so easily clung to this week, that it would free us, we pray, by the Spirit, as we are reminded afresh of the costliness of our redemption that it cost You, Father, Your Son. Forgive us, we pray. Let the, let the Gospel shine bright again in our hearts for Your glory and our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.